You're listening to Atomic Moms, a podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with best-selling authors, world-class experts, and parents figuring it out. You all, it's my birthday week, and there's no better way to celebrate than giving Dr. Michael Reichert the mic for episode number 214. I couldn't even say it's so many episodes, 214. It's also the birthday week of his book, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. It's out as of today, April 9th. Dr. Reichert is the founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a clinical practitioner specializing in boys and men who has conducted extensive research globally. I want to know, like, how do we raise young men to be caring and self-aware while also celebrating innate boyness? How do we do it? We discuss a child's true message behind limit testing, a message that I need to remind myself of with Sabrina's constant limit testing and the single most important factor in a boy's ability to learn. Do you guys know what it is? And we also talk about how our own childhoods, you know, revisit us again when we're raising our own kids. (sighs) This is a conversation that every educator and parent will want to hear Let's also consider this an adults-only conversation. Uh, Kick the little ones out of the room. (laughs) Okay, so boys seem to be caught in the middle of the culture wars, as our guest today discusses in his new book. And my sister, she's at the University of Texas. She's much, much younger than me. And her school recently launched a new program called Masculine UT get it, about redefining masculinity and helping reduce sexual assault. Well, people went nuts. I even remember my dad sending me a text like, give me a break. And now, because people went so crazy about this, they've, they've been making tweaks and rebranding it uh, because masculine UT, which again was supposed to be about redefining masculinity and helping reduce sexual assault, is being seen as vilifying masculinity or equating masculinity with mental illness. So they moved it to the office of the dean of students from the counseling and mental health center. Um, I guess people, you know, feathers were very ruffled about it being at the mental health center. Okay, but these conversations do need to be had somehow, because according to a web-based survey UT released from spring 2017, 15% of undergraduate women said they had been raped since enrolling at Austin, 15%. And regarding sexual aggression, Dr. Reichert shares in his book how the sexual aggression can actually be linked to childhood. And that's why we're talking about it today. We never talk about college, except for, you know, my former boyfriends and when I was studying abroad. But today we're talking about this in the intro because it does link to childhood. And he shares in his book, uh, quote, plainly some boys lose sight of themselves, not to mention their partners. Two delusions seem to underlie these outcomes that males are entitled to sex and that it is appropriate for them to exploit women. 
Those were the two things. I read it as though it was one thing, but really it was two things. That males are entitled to sex, and number two, that it's appropriate for them to exploit women. The root of these attitudes stems not just from peer culture, he writes, but also from childhood experiences. In some families, attitudes of hypermasculinity, even male supremacy, are woven into boys' socialization. The parents who reserve harsher, more physical discipline for their sons and who ridicule their display of emotion and need for connection unwittingly teach them to reject and even resent all things feminine. He goes on to say that these attitudes condition their teen and adult relationships. End quote. So I got screamed at this morning. Again, you guys, do you remember my dry cleaner story from a couple months ago? Oh my God, okay, I gotta leave LA. I'd love to know, like, is this an L.A. thing or or is the rest of the world just like bubbling with rage? Because I got screamed at by a stranger this morning for a good 20 minutes. I was in a fender bender. It was early morning. I had just dropped Sabrina off at preschool. And we, you know, the thing happened. And then the driver and I pulled into an oil change place. And he won't stop yelling at me. And I am aware that I'm a woman alone. And I know that I I don't want to escalate it. I, maybe I'm smarter now that I'm older. Maybe it's because my the stakes are so much higher with having two young girls. But I really have learned to keep an even keel, you know, when I'm being verbally abused. So he starts yelling so loudly and so much that the oil change guys who, you know, because we're at the oil change place, they come out. And again, all I've said is, I'm sorry. I'm literally channeling, like, what would Atomic Mom's version of Ellie do? And I, like, try to do that. And I'm like, well, at least there's going to be surveillance cameras. Like, it'll be fine. The oil change guys come out. I think that they're going to say, like, hey, you know. Let's cool down. And instead, they tell us we have to get off their property (laughs) because the parking spots are reserved for customers. Mind you, there are no customers. But these, I'm being yelled at by one man, and two men come over and say that we have to leave and take this elsewhere. I'm like, great. So now I get to go on some side street by myself with this lunatic. And then I notice there's a boy... There's a boy in his back seat, and he's in preschool like my daughter. And I feel horrendous for about a thousand reasons. And the, the of course, they're both physically totally fine, though. And the man asks, the father asks where I'm going. He demands to know where I'm going. And I quietly say, I'm trying to get to a mammogram, at which point he yells, I don't give a beep about your mammogram so that the other men will also hear him. He's trying to humiliate me. And I'm not sure what's more infuriating, that I won't take the bait, that I give him nothing to rail against, my blank face, 
a man would have ended up in a fist fight with this guy. I want to say, I see that you're scared. That would have gotten me a fist in the mouth. And so we go to a little side street. He takes a billion photos. He makes me, like, drive another area so that, because there was sun on the car, so we couldn't get a good view. I don't know why. It, this little boy is just sitting in his car seat, watching and listening to his father yell and harass a woman for 20 minutes who is only saying, I'm sorry. I think about how that little boy will go to preschool. And I really hope his teachers have the skills to help him shake off the trauma of the morning. The tiny physical impact of the car's and the explosive impact of his father's rage. I hope his teachers have the skills and that he doesn't have to unload it on another child. You know, I had to give the father my driver's license, and I was genuinely concerned about his having my home address. And I wonder if he'll Google me and write shitty reviews of the podcast And suddenly my Instagram account with the photos of my children feels like unnecessarily exposing. And sometimes in the Atomic Mom's bubble, I forget that there are crazy, crazy, mean people out there. Why make myself vulnerable? Why share all of my mistakes better be worth it. And I think that what Dr. Reichert shares in this episode about raising our sons, about what we can do as parents, what we can do as educators, at this point in time, I don't think there could be anything more important. I'll be right back with Dr. Michael Reichert. Dr. Reichert, thank you so much for joining us on Atomic Moms. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I'm glad to be with you and your listeners. Well, if my great-grandsons are listening to this conversation someday through the Library of Congress or wherever they're going to be holding all these (laughs) Atomic Moms podcasts, can you give some historical context as to what it's like being a boy in America in 2019? Yes, I'd be glad to. That's actually a subject that I've thought a lot about. I've been really since my first son was born way back in the early 80s. I've been thinking about the, the boyhoods that we construct for our sons and how related they are to the uh, circumstances and, and cultural norms of our society. And I have seen uh, remarkable changes uh, in, in uh, the gender landscape, certainly driven by the women's movement, but in ways that are beginning, I think, to profoundly affect the opportunities that are available to boys. So what I would say to your grandson is that 2019, uh, right in this time frame, uh, is it may be a, a turning point, a real historical moment in the evolution of our understanding of boys and what they need. 
You know, before I became a parent, it it seemed like it well, everything seemed way simpler, Dr. Eichert. I just thought it would be, you know, I just I don't I didn't know how hard it would be. <laughs> so I I thought that like how to raise a boy, you know, or even how to raise my two girls and like to build good people. Like it shouldn't be that hard, but it is hard. And what are the obstacles that parents are coming up against that makes it so difficult to raise good people? Yeah, not an easy question, um, but I think it cuts right to the heart of things. You're right on the one hand, it is pretty straightforward. Raising a child should mean that we simply uh, accommodate ourselves the unfolding of their human natures. The the problem is both uh, in the society that's all around us, uh, influencing and infecting our relationships with our sons, and unfortunately, what's in our heads from our own experiences growing up and the way that we absorbed the gender norms and stereotypes that were everywhere uh, in our lives. So what makes it hard now is that we, we don't feel like we're on solid ground. We're, we're anxious to get it right and conscious of the fact that many parents of boys haven't gotten it right and to the point where I say that routine casualties are an inconvenient truth about boyhood. There are so many boys that don't make it. Um, they don't retain their hearts. They don't retain their virtue. And many don't retain their lives. We have, you know, the phenomenon of premature uh, preventable deaths, you know, where 15 to 24-year-old males, I think, are 75% of the mortality rate. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's scary and it's a struggle to get it right. The good news I have, I think, is twofold. One is that, that you know, the boys themselves are not the problem. And, and so what we're working with is actually quite, quite uh, uh, strong. Um, and I think if we can better understand what's happening around us that is pulling, sucking on our sons, trying to drive them away from themselves into conformity to a set of peer standards and norms that are unhealthy, we can under get a better picture of that and we can get a better handle on ourselves and the stereotypes and archetypes that reside in our unconscious minds. And we find ourselves acting out with our sons, uh, you know, over and over again. If we can get a better handle on that and a better understanding of the context, I think it gets easier. You share that the key to raising healthy boys is about fostering relationships at home and in the classroom. And so I'm wondering, Dr. Riker, can you share with us a little bit about how we can better step into our roles as what you call relationship managers? Mm. I sure can. Um, you know, I, I, I conducted the couple of global studies of boys' education from uh, about 2008 through 2014, we, we talked to and interviewed and surveyed 2,500 boys, adolescent boys, and about 2,000 of their teachers in as many as, you know, maybe 40 schools around the, around the world, six different countries, English-speaking countries. 
And we were led by the boys themselves to the uh, observation, to the conclusion that uh, boys are relational learners, that the, the, the key to engaging a boy in effortful learning, really applying himself to his work and to paying attention and to partnering with the teacher, the key to that is the relationship he has with the teacher or coach. Um, you know, you might think, that that uh, my research partner I and I between us we had 50 years of experience working with boys. You might think that we would have anticipated that, but in fact, in fact, we didn't. We were surprised, and um, you know, I think that that what we realized was that we too had been confused by the stereotypes of boys as non-relational, as responding to other motivations. But lo and behold, the boys themselves were absolutely clear that the connection that they have with the teacher is the make or break uh, condition to their learning. And when I realized that and, and, and we wrote up uh, our findings in the two books that we published and sat back and, and I visited schools all over the place, you know, working with faculty to understand what it means to be a relational teacher. And in particular, when breakdowns occur in a relationship, and of course breakdowns happen in every kind of relationship all the time, it's, it's routine. Relationships between me and my wife, or me and my sons, or you know, me, and, me and colleagues at work. Um, you know, in the case of the parent and the child, it's the parent's job, I'm sorry, or the teacher's job, to be the, the professional or the adult and both notice the breakdown or the way that the relationship has gotten weaker and fix it. Um, one of the things we heard all around the world was teachers uh, becoming sort of at the end of their ropes and saying essentially, you know, I've gone as far as I'm going to go with this boy. It's up to him to put in and, and, and do what he has to do to earn my, earn my partnership. And, you know, in the second study we did, we asked boys the question, you know, what initiative have you taken to fix a broken relationship with a teacher or a coach? And we had 1,400 boys in that study. Guess how many boys said that they took some initiative to repair a relational breakdown? Well, I know because I read your book, but you can share with our <laughs> listeners. None did, Dr. None. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we actually did a focus group with uh, at one particular school because I thought that was a remarkable finding. Yeah. And uh, I did a focus group with the top students at a school. You know, these are guys that are, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the president of the class and in other leadership positions. The boys that are most endorsed by the school and therefore probably most efficacious have the most initiative in general. Mm -hmm. And I asked them two questions. I said, first of all, do you guys have stories to tell about breakdowns in, in relationships with teachers? And of course they did. And they were exactly the same stories we'd heard throughout the study. You know, a teacher that behaved disrespectfully or a teacher that they didn't feel was uh, responding to their needs, things like that. And then I asked the second question, what did you do about it? And the boys said nothing. And I asked them why. And they explained that uh, there were a whole set of factors inherent in the relationship that prohibit them, that really inhibit them from 
from uh, trying to fix something that's broken. You know, it, it might be fear that the teacher will take it the wrong way or retaliate. Uh, it might be that they simply feel powerless. You know, the power asymmetry between a, an adult and a young person is so profound. The boys, you know, really felt that the teacher had the power to influence the course of their lives. And they were afraid, frankly, to stand up for themselves or speak to what they thought wasn't working. So instead, what they did is they just checked out. They just kept it to themselves and lost motivation or worse. So we, we came up with this idea, you know, that the teacher is the relationship manager and it's the teacher's job to notice when a relationship or a connection becomes attenuated and undertake strategies to fix it. Boy, you know, I, I tell I tell teachers when I do these workshops, I say, if you reach a point where you're waiting for a boy to do something to win you back or to, to uh, you know, correct the mistake he's made, don't hold your breath. It's not a winning strategy. Yeah. And, and so from that observation in the field of education, I reflected on uh, my work in my clinical practice with boys and parents and realized it was the same phenomenon that boys are way more relational and relationally sensitive than most parents realize Mm. that most of us are really uh, in a fog about boys, this, this fundamentally relational quality to boys natures. We shouldn't be, you know, the field of interpersonal neuroscience has really uh, uh, said it very succinctly, you know, all human beings are wired to connect. It's actually how we've evolved as creatures. And, uh, you know, we have these brain structures that specifically respond to input uh, data uh, uh, from, you know, from intimate relationships. Those are the most meaningful uh, stimuli that we're attuned to uh, respond to. Our brains grow in direct response to relational input. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised, but somehow the stereotypes of boys and men are so powerful that we forget, essentially, that boys are relationally sensitive. And in parenting, in teaching, in coaching, we tend to uh, uh, be put off by what seems like a boy who doesn't care or doesn't want us around or is rejecting us. And we develop uh, reactions to that. Um, you know, we feel irritated, we feel discouraged, we give up, we write the boy off, um, or we mm-hmm. wait for him to come back around. You know, I hear a lot of parents say when their adolescent son, for example, seems irritable around them. Many of them say, well, he'll come around when he gets to be in his 20s. And, you know, what I say to them clinically is, my goodness, it's now when he's feeling pained by the pressures he's facing that he needs you the most. He needs you to have confidence that he is, in fact, present, even if he can't show it, if he's afraid or has learned to shield himself from the barrage of negative pressure and feedback that's coming at him, you have to be the one to know that he's there waiting for you to reach out to him, even if it's a, it's, it's a hard thing for him to show that. 
So basically what I tell parents is you have the power in this relationship. It's not power to dominate or control or force a boy. It's the power of your love and your attention that he absolutely requires to flourish. And you're the one who needs to be confident that in offering that to him, you will win him back. Mm. You, you know, one of the most beautiful things you write. So I have two daughters and one of them is five and the other one is 20 months. But my five-year-old is, you know, she's highly gifted and highly stubborn. <laughs> and she, I, I hired a part-time nanny to pick her up from school recently. And she was a wonderful part-time nanny. And my daughter was doing limit testing and the nanny quit. <laughs> and I was really frustrated about it. But then when I read this quote of yours, it made me feel so much better. And it's really helped me this week. You write the various ways that boys test caregivers in the course of a special time relationship are not intended to push them away, but unconsciously to settle a question in their minds. Can this person handle me? I was thinking about that and how <laughs> our part-time nanny had quit. <laughs> and it, it was like that my daughter was asking her through her behavior, can you handle me? It made it when my daughter test limits with me feel so much less personal to me. Like yeah. it, It's not yeah. that she doesn't like me. She's literally asking, like, will you stay by my side? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I love that, uh, Ellie. And, you know, in that dynamic between your very young daughter and the part-time nanny, what happened was that the nanny stopped being the adult, the relationship manager, who was offering resource of attention and care to the young person. And the nanny made it about her and her hurt feelings or her fears. She became a personal manager, managing her own uh, sense of self and ego. And that's exactly what we found uh, when, when relational breakdowns occurred between teachers and students. Too often when the breakdowns occurred, what we read in the stories of these breakdowns, and they were often very painful and poignant, what we read was that the teacher just reached the end of their rope. They couldn't stay, they couldn't hang in anymore. And they had, exactly as you said, they had come to take it personal. Mm. When in fact, what the boy was, was flagging, was demonstrating was, I feel this, you know, lonely or rejected or cynical or desperate or driven. And I'm looking for someone to be, uh, you know, what, what we psychologists call uh, my holding environment. Mm. I'm looking for somebody who's big enough uh, uh, smart enough that they know that I just need someone to enfold me in their attention and care and help me come back into connection. And unfortunately, you know, your nanny, nanny wasn't, uh, <laughs> she wasn't in a position to do that. And, and, and often that's what we find with teachers is that they're managing these, you know, these student uh, loads and they're, they've got personal lives and personal stresses, and they just simply may not have the emotional capacity to handle limit testing that is so uh, common in, in working with boys. You know, we say that boys act their distresses out. 
it's not true, uh, you know, uniformly, but I think that, that boys probably have had more permission to act out as well as act in. So, you know, it's a boy can be tough, no question about it. He can be in your face or he can be creating a disruption or he can be, uh, you know, angry or, you know, defiant and, and withdrawn. And a teacher, it's hard for a teacher not to take that personally unless they have developed enough confidence or have enough perspective uh, that they can operate on faith in those moments when they can't see clearly themselves. How do they have faith that 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 it's not just bad chemistry between the child and the adult? And this is less, I guess, about the teachers, but let's say there's a mentorship or other relationships like an uncle or even a parent where the I could see a parent taking it personally because they would say like, well, this kid d- clearly saying that they don't want me around. The kid's unhappy around me, so I'm going to check out. I'm actually just like yeah, getting this yeah. wave of like, I imagine there's probably divorced fathers where they are just so sick of their, you know, their angry son, you know, not connecting with them that they they end up leaving and not showing up on the weekends. Yeah. Well, that that is exactly what we observed also in the educational study that I think it occurs uh, equally in relationships with parents. You know, the teacher just, you know, rationalizes the relational breakdown by saying, essentially, you know, it's the boy's problem, not mine. And uh, you know, when I put out to to uh, teachers that every kind of boy in our studies, boys with all kinds of problems, you know, psychological problems, family problems, socioeconomic or racial problems, you know, every kind of difficult circumstance, a boy with all of those different issues, every boy uh, has a story to tell about being reached despite those barriers. And if that's the case, if every boy is reached by someone, what it means is that boy can be reached. And if you're the teacher and you're striking out with that boy, unfortunately, what it means is you can't give up on reaching him yourself. Even though you might believe that, you know, he's reacting in a very unfair way to you because of this, that, or the other thing, your teaching style, your gender. Sometimes, you know, sometimes boys would say they couldn't get on with a teacher because he had a beard and it reminded them of a strict uncle that had a beard, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Very, very unfair projections or reactions. But, you know, that is what children do. And in some ways, we give them the right to be themselves and uh, we take it upon ourselves as the caregivers as the suppliers of care, we take it upon ourselves to be the ones to reach for them despite the barriers that they throw up. And, you know, the idea that a teacher or a parent, a caregiver can't give up on reaching a a child, the point is not to give up on themselves and their own skills. They may not have the particular style for reaching the boy currently in their relational repertoire, but they should have a growth mindset and be prepared to stretch and learn new tricks. 
And likewise, parents, you know, that stepfather example you gave, you know, if that stepfather keeps showing up, fielding the boy's defiance or anger or disappointment and showing the boy that the boy can be himself and it's not going to chase the father away, that he is determined to have a relationship with you. You can't force a relationship. You know, we, we, that, that, that's the other thing I say to teachers. It's, uh, you know, learning is uh, requires assent, active consent. You can't force a boy to be a partner. You can't force a boy into a relationship. But what you can do is you can overcome resistance by the persistence of your, your attention and your care. And, you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's good attention, good care, it doesn't come with strings or, or you know, isn't, uh, isn't really about satisfying your own needs, but really intended to be a gift to the boy, it's going to win. It's going to win out. Since we're talking about dads, <laughs> how do you suggest that they handle their own baggage? Because I feel like... There are so many depressed fathers out there who don't have the emotional tools to co-parent in the new ways that we're raising our children. They, they're, they're unsure of how to make the emotional space for the kids. They feel like the world is not making the emotional space for them, not that they would use it anyway because they wouldn't know how, how to feel. You talk in the book about the disconnection from their bodies. They're getting their share of rage from, you know, mothers who are, you know, we're stomping around, I'm stomping around and saying like, hey, you know, the the emotional labor and all this stuff. And, and what advice do you have for fathers who, you know, weren't raised in this way that we're trying to now raise our kids? Yeah, yeah. I have a great deal of, of empathy for fathers, that's for sure. And, you know, uh, I get it. One of the strongest findings in psychology, developmental psychology, is this finding that the attachment style of parents correlates, predicts almost the attachment style of our children. That that if I that if I myself uh, have an insecure attachment model as a result of a relationship with parents that were inattentive or impaired or absent, I'm likely to pass that attachment style onto my son. That's the, that's the unfortunate intergenerational transmission of this, this, this uh, difficulty. So lots of fathers grew up in a time when we didn't understand the relational nature of, and needs of boys. And consequently, uh, you know, Bill Pollack, the, the fellow that wrote, the psychologist that wrote the book Real Boys, uses very fancy language uh, to describe this phenomenon. But the, the language he used is the traumatic abrogation of boys' holding environments. Basically translated, it means uh, boys are abandoned and it's traumatizing. And in order to prop ourselves up or hold ourselves together in the face of this wound, um, we 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 go away a little bit. We numb ourselves emotionally and distance ourselves from the potential for disappointment uh, in relationships. In intimacy is harder to manage. We dare not risk it, that kind of thing. And unfortunately, unless that 
unless we get a chance to acknowledge those feelings and work them through, we tend to carry them forward and reenact them in our relationships with our children. So the good news here, that's the sobering news. The good news, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the good news is that these working models uh, for, uh, you know, attachment style, the expectations that we carry into intimate relationships, they can be changed. The language we use in psychology is they can be disconfirmed mm-hmm. by new relationships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tell teachers, for example, that when they encounter a boy who seems completely uh, unwilling to open up or, or uh, you know, um, allow them in, um, that probably means that boy has been hurt and has learned to shield himself from further hurt by not allowing himself to be vulnerable and to care. But those very boys are the ones most in need of a persistent, confident outreach. And if they experience enough consistency in that, where the teacher doesn't flip and become either coercive and demanding or rejecting and distant, um, if, the, if the teacher can keep reaching, what the boy has the opportunity to do is to relearn relationship. They can change what they expect uh, in a relationship. And so many stories in our studies were about that kind of profound transformation. Boys would talk and, it, it, you know, it would bring tears to your eyes about a teacher who completely changed them help them to see themselves differently, help them believe in something and not just in themselves, but existentially, you know, in the world. And so what I would say to fathers is that this work is not easy, mostly because of what we've inherited intergenerationally. Most of us didn't get what we needed in in our own intimate relationships growing up. And there is this Uh, you know, statistical probability that we will carry it forward unless we actually notice what we're doing and come to grips with it and wrestle it through. What can make a big difference as we do that work or, you know, in order to do that work is a partner who can understand and believe in us, not blame us for our shortcomings, and, and yet not allow us to simply reenact the same pattern. I know it's tough, you know, for moms, for example, you know, partnered with a guy who has this struggle, you know, would prefer to work than to play with his kids or, you know, finds a way to be busy with one thing or another all the time. You know, it's difficult for those moms who have all this second shift work to take responsibility also for their partner. But the truth is their partner hasn't been privileged in this particular way. In fact, it's been, he's been handicapped. He's been, he's been hurt. And uh, no one's really acknowledging or talking about the systematic nature of that hurt that's done to, to males. Can you talk a little more about that, about the systematic <laughs> hurt? Since well, no one yeah, else is talking know, about it, let's do it now. <laughs> Well, you know, there's some folks talking about it in the men's movement, and it's there's beginning to be, I think, a reckoning. And again, I, I attribute this to the um, 
the blessings of the women's movement. Um, you know, for, for generations, uh, uh, we, we guys, uh, I think we're, we're, we're caused to believe that things were just the way they were. And, you know, if we couldn't flourish in traditional masculine roles, there was some shortcoming in us. And, and what's happened is we're beginning to acknowledge that, gee, masculinity and the experience of boyhood, it's not so great. And there's some hurts that come along with it that are built into the very nature and design of boyhood. And, and it turns out profound violations of our very basic natures that leave residual damage that can last a lifetime. So, you know, I think there's a freeing almost to call it what it is. And it creates the preconditions for a dramatic improvement in men's lives, boys' lives. I'm curious, like, is there a benefit to boys fighting it out, though? Like, we always hear about girls holding grudges and how boys will just duke it out and get it over quicker. Like, is... Are is there value in the quote unquote letting boys be boys, which I'm like cringing saying that, but at the same time, the ones that I <laughs> witness playing with my daughter are very physical. And and is that okay to let them duke it out? And is it okay to let them play with toy guns? What is your stance on that? Yeah, no, I, I like the question. Um so it's, it's about discernment, really. You know, yes, there are lots of ways that boys are going to behave that are going to um, confuse or even frighten people, particularly, I think, women, mothers, female teachers. And that reactivity to boys sort of showing, you know, their, their particular personalities and personality styles and styles for interacting and engaging with the world, that reactivity, that's the problem. It's not the boys and their behavior. You know, the fact that boys can be wild and noisy and rambunctious and aggressive, that's not the problem. The problem is our reaction to it. And, you know, we tend to pathologize that and, and, you know, want boys to um, fit themselves into some preconceived idea of, you know, what a, how, how, a, how a person should be without really acknowledging that we ourselves are being triggered by their behavior, thrown back into some sort of primordial reaction to aggression or rambunctiousness or whatnot. Judy Chu, the psychologist at Stanford University who wrote a wonderful book titled When Boys Become, quote, Boys, did this study where she followed four-year-old boys for two years, coming weekly to visit them in school and just doing lots of naturalistic observations and interviews with them. And she talks about when she first came into the school classroom and the various ways that boys would try to engage with her. And there was one story, I really love this story, of a boy who made his hand into a gun and pretended to shoot her. And at first she was put off by that and, and thought that her reaction needed to be to 
you know, redirect the boy to less violent play or, or, you know, and, and almost chide him or, or shame him for, you know, engaging with her this way. But I think she caught herself and noticed that her, her reaction to the boy was actually antithetical to what she was trying to do as a researcher, which was simply to observe them. So the second time he did it, she actually went along with it and pretended to die and fell back on the floor. And, uh, you know, the boy engaged with her at that point and their relationship blossomed to the point where later that day in a story time, he asked her if he could sit in her lap. So my point is that the problem there wasn't the boy or the boy's behavior, but the relationship that the adult was creating Mm -hmm. and the way that the, the way that the preconceived ideas and reactions of the adult tended to dominate the way Mm -hmm. that she approached the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that I, I, I said discernment. What I meant was if we see a boy who's misbehaving or who's off in some way, particularly if the boy is uh, acting in a way that's hurtful or damaging, that's a boy who's, who's lost to himself. And what that boy needs is a limit, not a judgment and not mm-hmm. domination, but a limit. And the point of the limit isn't to um, control the boy. The point of the limit is to slow the boy down so that whatever feelings, emotions are driving the misbehavior can actually surge to the foreground and the boy can actually notice what he's feeling and communicate it to the adult. So the model that I talk about in the book, the model of discipline that I talk about is listen, limit, listen, where the point is first to discern, is this behavior simply upsetting to me or is it actually off and, and somehow, um, you know, destructive or self-destructive. And if we discern that it in fact is, you know, the boy acting something out, what's called for is to move in closer to the boy and simply slow him down or stop him. And, you know, the boy that is mistreating his sister, for example, I hear lots of stories like this, his younger sister, you know, what the adult, what the parent should do in that instance is simply move down closer to the boy who's perpetrating this hurt towards his sister and simply, you know, intervene. Sometimes simply putting your hand on his chest and saying, I'm not going to let you hurt your sister. What's going on? What's happening to you? I know that's not who you are. And, you know, if the relationship is good and the parent is doing it in a way that's not uh, urgent or blaming or heavy handed, what the boy is going to do is have to face what he's feeling and, and communicate that. And that's when the third part of that cycle comes into play. The parent's job, the point of the limit is to actually help the boy purge himself of that uh, energy, that emotional energy that's driving misbehavior. I loved how you describe in the book and what you're saying right now that, you know, when I set that limit and my child has, you know, the blow up that some of us are afraid of happening, like I will catch myself trying to avoid that. And you mentioned in the book that that's probably from, you know, my own experiences of feeling powerless around 
you know, huge emotions when I was much younger as a child myself. So I would avoid it. But when I can stand in my power and set my limit as the grown up, and she has that big meltdown and that that is a release. And for me to see it as, oh, that's like her recalibrating her system. Like that's important and that's what we want versus feeling like or judging that that's a bad, that the blow up is a bad thing. That's right. And that's so helpful. And it's really helpful even with my a uh, 20 month old cuz before nap time sometimes she'll have a real meltdown and cry really yep. hard yep. and my baby teacher Janet Lansbury has been so helpful in letting me know and and you with this work as well that those tears are release you know as a society we've seen it as like no we don't cry and something must be terribly wrong and shut it down but some the, like it can be a release and it can allow the relaxation that's necessary in the nervous system to you know, calm down so that you can move on or fall asleep or whatever it may be. And that has been like a huge shift for me in recognizing that that meltdown isn't a bad thing. Yeah, it's exactly as you said. And and in fact, you know, that's that's work that I uh, love doing. I, I I, I created and run a an emotional literacy program for high school uh, juniors and seniors. So these are boys that are 16, 17, and 18 years old. Some are even 19. And what I do is I basically explain to them that, you know, emotions exist in all of us. And if they if they actually want to be in control of their lives, in charge of their lives, in charge of their minds, they have to acknowledge the feelings they have, and they have to do something to communicate them so that they're not simply uh, echoing in the chamber of their minds. Mm-hmm. They have to get them off their chest. And, and uh, when a boy, a young man, gets to acknowledge what he's feeling uh, and unload it, as you will, um, he feels so much relief that the boys in this program at the school, they call it peer counseling. They, they achieve what they call a peer counseling high. That's the words that they use. And what they mean is they just feel lighter. They feel more at ease and lighter because the tension, the emotional tension that was welling up has been discharged. It's amazing. Well, Dr. Reichert, there's so much more we could discuss. And luckily, you've written all of it already for all of our listeners. So they could just pick up your book to carry on the conversations themselves in their own homes. The book is How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Listeners, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can go to iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. Check out our show notes and join our newsletter at AtomicMoms.com. Follow us on Instagram at Atomic Moms. And Dr. Reichert, thank you so much for the profound work you are doing. Well, thank you, Ellie. Thanks for thanks for your kind words and thanks for uh, the conversation. I enjoyed it. Okay, listeners, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. <laughs>